Well, another warm welcome to you. My name's Tom. I'm another one of those elders here at the church. And if you've got a Bible, if you want to grab it, we're going to get straight to work this morning. We're going to look at the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, which is near the end of the Bible, if you're perhaps unfamiliar with it. We've been, uh, as a church, uh, on a journey in the last few weeks through the letter of uh, 1 Peter. And if you're not familiar with the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians he doesn't know in a place that's effectively modern-day Turkey nowadays. And he's writing to them, and they all have one thing in common, which is that they are facing tests and trials and difficulties of many different kinds. Which is Am I back? I'm back. I can just shout really loud. I'm back! Yeah. Um, they have one thing in common, which is that they are facing tests and trials and difficulties of many different kinds, which is why our series is entitled Tested, rather dramatically. And so we as a church are looking and trying to get into the world that Peter was in to taste what these guys were tasting so that we, when we face tests and trials and difficulties of many different kinds, we do well. And we've been looking at one of the basic truths is that Peter's trying to say to them, listen, I don't want you to be surprised when you faced tests and trials of of many different kinds. I don't want you to be surprised by that and suddenly think, oh no, am I out of the will of God or something? No, no. He's saying, actually, if you're following Jesus Christ, you will at times face tests and difficulties and trials of many different kinds. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Great. Cheery uh, preach for this Sunday morning. And we've been seeing that Peter's been saying, listen, you need to understand what the point of those tests is. So rather like a a, a carpenter, once he's built a shelving unit or something like that, he might give it a little shake just to test the strength of that unit. So God, as he puts us together as Christians, will often allow little shakes, little tests in our life to see the strength of our faith in him. And what we've been seeing is that actually more than that, tests... And trials and difficulties, they expose what is really in here, in our hearts, more than anything else. You know, when life is good, all of us can pretend really well to be Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. But actually, when we are tested, that's when we see really what's in here. So, it's rather like if you imagine two yellow sponges, both are dipped, one in a big bucket of dirty water, one dipped in a bucket of clean water. When they're lifted up, as long as they don't drip, you won't be able to tell which type of water is in which sponge until they are squeezed, until they are tested. And at that moment, as they're squeezed, you'll be able to see really what's inside the sponge. So we are like yellow sponges, is what I'm trying to say here today. Turn to the person next to you and say, hello, Mr. Sponge. Hello, Mr. We are sponges. You don't have to do that, don't worry. And, and today we are looking at the particular squeeze test of rejection. Okay, hooray. Trying to make it positive, as positive as I can. Smiling. Rejection. Today we're going to be looking at the test of rejection. Peter, throughout this wonderful letter, takes the time to talk about many different types of tests and many different types of trial that we face. But today, if we look carefully at the text, it's pretty clear that Peter is wanting to laser in on the test of rejection. What it is when we face rejection in all its different forms. 
And actually, we live in a culture, I would say, that is rejection adverse. We live in an acceptance culture. If you think about our politicians, I don't want to dishonor them, but the thing they have in common is that they're basically constantly trying to work out what the nation wants and then sort of pretend that's their main policy. Because, above all else, horror of horrors, they want to avoid being rejected. If you were to ask a little teenage girl or guy, what is your kind of ultimate nightmare? They'd probably say something along the lines of being rejected by my peers. And many of us in our lives, perhaps have at times, if you're a Christian here, try to talk about your faith. And actually, rather than your friend listening attentively, interested, they've gone effectively, get knotted. I don't want to listen. And so we as Christians need to realize that rejection in all of its different forms is an ingredient of life that we, we have to understand this. If the world is effectively saying, avoid rejection at all costs, what does the Bible have to say about it? Because what we're going to see today is this, is that the Bible, in contrast to the world, says this. Actually, if you're following Jesus, sometimes rejection will be inevitable. Actually, you need to understand that because in those moments of being tested, if you just think the way the world thinks, you'll try and avoid that rejection at all costs. Whereas if we're drenched like good sponges in God's glorious truth, we will realize that actually when it's led by Christ, those times of rejection in all their different forms, rather than something to be run away from, is actually something to stand firm in. So that's what Peter is trying to get into these Christians in modern-day Turkey, when he wrote to them in the following verses. So let's read together from chapter 2, verse 1, the first 12 verses. It will come up on the screen behind me yet, if you haven't got a Bible. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So he's basically describing the dirty water, okay? Make sure that when you are squeezed, when you face rejection, that that stuff doesn't come out of you. Instead... Long, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, which we have, and he is. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Interesting, the uh, prophetic word we had a few moments ago. He tells me he had no idea we were looking at this, and I believe him. Whoever believes in him, <laughs> that's Jesus, not John DeRobeck, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stum- a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We praise you that you are here by your spirit. Lord, we want to be those that, Lord Jesus, when the God-ordained tests come our way, we want to be those men and women whose lives are actually based on something solid, not on sand. My goodness, Lord, in the days in which we're living, where banks are falling, politicians are being exposed, Lord Jesus, where swine flu is causing great fear in people's hearts, now, more than ever, do we need to know, Lord, what do we base our life on? How do we do well when we are shaken? Thank you for these words. Let them live. Let them burn. Let them come alive in our hearts here this morning. Amen. Three keys that we see Peter give the Christians he's never met living in modern day Turkey. Three keys to do well when being tested. Number one, know Christ. Know Christ. Number two, know his community. Know his community. And number three, know his commission. Know Christ, know his community, know his commission. Let's just unpack those for a few moments this morning. First of all, he says to a people facing rejection, you need to know Jesus. You need to have, to quote a long word, an accurate Christology. Christusology, words about Jesus. He's saying, you, man, woman or child, old or young, young, a new convert or someone who's been a Christian for 50 years, it doesn't matter. The starting place when you face tests of all kinds, but particularly tests uh, re- regarding rejection, the starting place is in your understanding. Can you put your hands on your head for me? In your mind. In your mind. He's saying you have to have your mind clear in who Jesus Christ is. Thank you so much. And he says two profound things that I pray right now by the Spirit of God will enter into our minds afresh today. Two massive truths about Jesus Christ that will change how we do. First of all, we need to understand that Jesus, in the sight of men, was rejected. But then secondly, we need to know Christ that in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. What Peter does here in the space of one sentence is say two huge things, which together provide us with a package of knowing Christ. First of all, he says here, listen, you need to understand Christ understands your rejection. Now, from a kind of pastoral point of view, okay, this is like a kind of Bosh, home run, big fat six out of the cricket ground straight away. Because any person here who's ever had any involvement in pastoral work will know the golden rule. When you face someone, you're chatting with someone, and they are going through a difficulty, don't try and fix it, okay? Don't try and say, oh, let me try and fix it, as all men try to do. Just the key thing when you are hurting and you're feeling pain is this. I understand. I feel what you feel. I've been where you've been. I am where you are. And that's what Peter starts by saying. He, in fact, puts his arm around these Christians he's never met and says, Do you know what, mate? You're facing some difficult times. I'm not going to deny that. I can't fix it. But do you know what? I know how you feel. But more than that, Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. And you know what it's like. I, I just, just in the last few weeks have been one of my best friends. He's a Christian, but he's actually been doubting his salvation. 
He believes in, you know, he believes in heaven and hell, but he's gone to this place where he's thinking, I don't know actually if I have saving faith. And I, in my blunderous ways, have tried to fix it. And then I made the right decision of connecting with a very godly man and said, just talk to him. An older guy. And effectively, all this guy said to him was, do you know what? I've been where you, where you, where you are now. And do you know what? Some of the greatest men who have changed nations have suffered with what you're suffering with. Have gone through the test of, actually, do I definitely have saving faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and many others. And do you know what? Simply him knowing that actually this guy understood and that other great men understood has lifted him out of a place of being, to be honest with you, finding things very difficult into a place of great freedom. The situation remains, but knowing... He has a hero. He has an example, actually, who has walked before him in it, changes everything. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, know Christ. Know that when you face those tests, Christ goes before you. He wasn't some sort of, you know, yes, he was fully God, but he was fully man. He didn't sort of float, you know, three inches above the ground with no tests and like bullets bouncing off him. You know, kind of like, I am Superman. Actually, Jesus is a high priest who's fully able to sympathize. Hallelujah. He understands. Jesus Christ was totally rejected. The crowds at one moment were crying, Hosanna! 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 Only moments later were saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him! Why? Because he didn't fit into their little box of what the Messiah should be like. They wanted a Messiah who would come and say, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Oh, you bad Romans! Leave these Jews alone and basically give them... Thank you very much. Practicing that all week. Thank you. They were looking for a worldly leader who would basically kick out the Romans and give them political victory. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, actually, the enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of us actually have chosen to reject God. And Jesus, therefore, not surprisingly, was rejected. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. And so Jesus just says here, listen, if if you say you're a Christ follower, you need to know you will face rejection. But you know what? I've walked before you. I have suffered in the place that you might be suffering. And this changes everything because what it does is it forces us to look at the issue of pain. Because when we experience rejection of, of different kinds, really what we're feeling is pain. And Maybe it's just me, but when I feel pain, my instinctive reaction is to go do anything to avoid pain. But what, what we're learning here is that not all pain is bad. If you're lying and you've got you know, a stomach flu or whatever, you probably want to worry. You might have you know, swine flu or something. That's a bad pain. Okay, It's not a good pain. But if you're like me, massively into keeping fit, um, <laughs> no, I occasionally jog. Um, And in the last five minutes, it goes from a vague trot into somewhat resembling a real run. And in those last five minutes, I experience pain. I experience the pain of my heart throbbing and, you know, you know what it's like when you're really going for it. But that's a good pain because it's showing that my muscles are working, that my lungs are working, that my metabolism is is heightened. I mean, I don't really understand it all, but I know, (laughs) as you can tell, I know that the pain is not something saying something's wrong, it's saying something's right. And this is huge for us because as we face, at times, rejection and pain, Jesus says, listen, that pain need not necessarily be something that's saying something wrong, actually. It's not necessarily something to be avoided, but sometimes when God leads us in there, it's something to walk through. 
And that's huge. Having a hero who has walked through difficulties changes everything. I remember just a few weeks ago listening to an American pastor called Matt Chandler from Dallas, who I think is great. And um, I remember him just throwaway line, just talking about how actually as a young pastor, him and his team had to make some bold decisions, which the church at that point hadn't really liked. And so he had experienced something of rejection from some individuals. Now, I haven't, you'll be pleased to know, I haven't been experiencing that. But knowing that he had walked through that somehow changed it. And I thought, actually, if in the future we as an eldership have to make some difficult decisions which we really believe Scripture and God are saying, even if there is pain, because perhaps some would disagree, do you know, having a hero enables us to go through it. And Peter starts here. He says, listen, you have to know Christ. Please have an accurate understanding that Jesus understands pain. He really does. But then suddenly, in a moment, he flips it. Look, he says, yes, at one level, in the sight of men, Jesus was rejected. But something else was happening In the unseen realm, there was another view. There was another sight going on. He says, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. He's saying that just as the world was saying, this guy's a load of rubbish. The father in heaven was saying, you could not be more wrong. This Jesus, this man who walks on earth, is the person the world has been looking for. He is the answer to every question. He is chosen and precious. And, and as you read the Gospels, you just get these little glimpses where suddenly the father just can't help himself. I mean, one of the famous is Matthew 3. I just love it. Jesus' baptism. You know the story. He's a young guy. He, in obedience, gets baptized. And up he comes. And as he, up he, out of the water he comes. And booming from heaven, his heavenly father says, Beloved, that's my beloved son who, who with I'm well pleased. And you can just imagine the father sort of, you know, from heaven watching, trying to bite his lip. Oh, I don't want to embarrass him. Oh, oh, oh there he is. Well done, Jesus. Oh, blow it. That's my son. I love him. Jesus is like, I'm sorry, guys. He, he gets like this sometimes. You know, I do. You know, moments later when he's alone with God in the quiet place, he's going to be like, Dad, can you wait until I did something impressive like you know, water into what? Baptism. He's just getting wet. It's just obedience. Yeah, the Father, where do we get emotions from? They're from the Father. They're from heaven. And the Father, as Jesus was being rejected, was saying, he's chosen and precious. He's chosen and precious. And then look what he does here. He then adds a very significant word. He says he's chosen and precious. He is the cornerstone. Look, he says it several times. In verse 4, sorry, no, in verse 6, he says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious, chosen, and precious. And the next verse, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And again, a stone of stumbling and a a rock of offense. Why is he talking about stones all of a sudden? What's going on, Jesus, uh, Peter? What he's saying is this, is if, if you were a first century person, you would have understood as soon as he said cornerstone, that would have rung some bells. Because the reason, scholars tell me, not because I'm a builder, uh, but the reason that buildings lasted a long time in those days was effectively because of cornerstone technology, I'm told. Very simple idea. As you build the building, before you do anything else, you choose the very best stone. You look around, you go, well, that's clearly the very best stone. It's the perfect stone. It's absolutely immaculate. And we'll put that at the beginning of the building project. 
so that, as we heard earlier on, as the other bricks of the building are laid on it, it can take the load. If that goes, if that crumbles, the entire house crumbles. And so the cornerstone has to be perfect. I was at Canterbury Cathedral just a couple of weeks ago, and I would you know, bet a million pounds that is a cornerstone building. Because it's been here like a thousand years, and you know, it's not going anywhere. Let's just say that. It is pretty solid. Cornerstones were vital for buildings to last. And he actually here, I think he, he uses this, he actually, um, it's quite a comical picture. Look in verse 7, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like he's talking about some dozy builders who are like, you know, like, right, morning Frank, morning Bill. All right, let's get this building up. Right, okay, should we do a cornerstone? Nah, forget it. Let's just get it up nice and quick. You know, rejecting the cornerstone technology. The, the, the stone that the builders rejected, it's a little bit like Tom Shaw. Every time I go to Ikea, I never learned my lesson. I get the flat-packed shelving unit. I get it home. There's the instructions. Nah, they're for babies. I will do this on my own. I don't need any instructions, thank you very much. And so I assemble the shelving unit and then stand and watch proudly. The fact that it sways slightly is slightly unnerving. Josie's trying to be encouraging, but a little nervous. Tom, should it, should it be quite so flimsy? Isn't that kind of metal rod thing rather vital that you should have put in at the beginning if you'd read the instructions? The vital, maybe unimpressive thing at one level, but is vital for the strength of the construction. Anyone here ever done anything akin to that? Yes, let's be honest. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that which the world rejected is unimportant. Isn't just chosen and precious. It is functionally vital. I'll say that again. It's not that Jesus is just chosen and precious. Because he's the cornerstone, he is functionally vital. To be a Christian actually means that our marriages are built on Christ alone. It means that our finances are built on Christ alone. It means this church is built not on elders. It's not built on having a nice, but it's built on Christ alone. Parenting is based on Christ alone. The entire of our lives is based on Christ alone. Alone, because he is the only one that will actually be able to take the load. And that's why the words of the famous song written by Stuart Tannant are so powerful. He says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought or storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter. My all in all, here, on the love of Christ, I stand. To be a Christian means that you build your life, not on Jesus plus having a great job. You don't build it on Jesus plus as long as I get a partner. It's not Jesus plus having a nice family or a nice house. No, no, it is on Christ alone. And when we allow those other things to sneak in, they will disappoint. They will crumble. And then it will be exposed that our lives are not based on Christ alone. Is Christ your cornerstone? Or is he a stone? Is it Christ? Is he part of the wall somewhere? Or is he the cornerstone? The foundation? And Peter's saying here, listen, know that Christ suffered rejection. He feels what we feel. But more than that, you have to base your whole life on him and him alone. Lesson number one. Know Christ. Lesson number two though. 
Know his community. Know his community. So now the focus moves off Christ and on you and me. He lays us in now on the audience themselves. And he says this, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Phenomenal words. I mean, this is like a sermon series in two verses. And what Peter does here is, is he asks the question, where do you get your identity from? I've told you the first key is to get your eyes on Jesus. But where do you get your identity from? You see, most of us in life, without Christ, we find our identity in our performance. In, what, just in one way or another. You know, how well I'm doing in my job. How much I get paid. Or how many friends I have. How many friends do I have on my Facebook clickometer thing? For those of you who do Facebook, you'll know what I mean. You know, how highly regarded am I by my friends and peers? All to do with performance. The trouble with that is is it leads to one of two things. Pride, if you feel you're doing well, or despair, if you feel you're not. Either one of those two, God doesn't want for us. That's not where God wants us to find our identity. And what he does is here, he provides us with a third way. Are you ready for this? How are we to actually find our identity? It is this. Not in performance, but to be known and loved by someone unconditionally. To be known and loved by someone unconditionally. Now, even as I say this, we often go, I kind of get that. But I kind of don't as well. So I get my identity in knowing who it is that loves me unconditionally. Yeah. That's the key. This is the second key that he gives us. You don't just know Christ and make him your cornerstone. But then secondly, you know his passion for you. You know his ferocious, if I may say, his volcanic passion for you sitting in this room. It's extraordinary. And he just layers truth upon truth upon truth upon truth upon truth to make this so clear. He first of all says, you need to know you are a loved community. Look, there it says, you are a chosen race. And what he's saying is here, listen, the passion that I talked about, you know, Jesus, the Father for Jesus at the baptism, do you know what? He has that for you now. If you know Jesus here today, he has the same passion that we saw bubbling over in that moment when the father says, this is my life, for you. It's incredible. The father says, I have chosen you. As I was praying about this, I felt for some of you, even as I'm saying this, it's bouncing off. Right now. And God says, no, today. It's not complicated. The secret you need to know to liberate you is that you are chosen You're chosen. For those of you who, like me, when you're at school, you were in the PE class and you had the wonderful experience of being the last one to be picked, shall we say, i.e. you weren't picked. You need to know you're chosen. You need to know you are chosen. And look what he says here. He says, you are his own possession. God is trying to use language here to convey the emotion of the Father. He's not being cool about this, okay? We try and be cool. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Easy come, easy go. No, no, the father, you are my possession. My daughter, Lily, one and a half, she doesn't care about anything in life apart from one thing, panda. 
She adores panda. Panda is a, basically a stuffed panda, effectively the same size as her, which turned up somehow. I don't know where it came from. She is obsessed with this thing. She walks, she can hardly walk, but she walks around with panda. Wherever Lily is, there is panda. And I have seen foolishly people, grown adults, try and take panda out of Lily's hands. It is not a pretty sight. Bloody nose, black eyes, that kind of thing. Daisy, her big sister, foolishly at times has tried to take panda. Oh my goodness. Lily, this is her possession. She squeezes that thing. It is always dirty as a result. As if it was her last moment on earth. Do you know what? God sees you as his chosen possession. He sees you as his chosen possession. You know, I, I grew up in a family. It's great because my mum and, dad, and dad are here, but I would have said this anyway. Well, let's just say I was encouraged, okay? You know, I'm quite a positive part, person. It's come from somewhere. My mum and dad, you know, I, could come, I could have come eighth in a race with eight people. And they would be like, woohoo, that's my boy. Come on, let's break open the bubbly. You know, my mum and dad were massively encouraging. I remember the time when I once was sort of doing an envelope and I had learned, I'm rubbish at art, okay? But I'd sort of written, you know, the name and then I'd done that kind of 3D thing, you know, with the letters we do, like the lines behind it and it looks slightly 3D. And my mum was like, phenomenal. You are a phenomenon. You will be the next Tony Hart, my son. Rolf Harris, get worried. And I was like, Really? You really think so? I'm good at design. Thank you, Mum. It's a lie, but it was very encouraging. God sees us as his chosen possession. I actually get worried sometimes at the passion I have for my daughters. I mean, the emotions I feel. I remember the first time Daisy did a wee in the potty. I was so excited, I think I scared her. You know, I was like throwing open the doors. My daughter's weed in a potty! You guys know who got kids, what I mean. Many weeks of prayer had gone into that. Please, we in the potty. She's my possession. She's my daughter. They're my kids. And I know this is simple. Forgive me. I'm not a, a clever guy. But you know what? We just need to rest in that today. At times, the world will take a lump out of you, but ultimately, it doesn't matter because God says you're chosen, you're precious. Please believe it. He's proved it at the cross. It's not a cheap thing. He just, eh, you all chose, but no, no. He's given his son's life so you could be chosen and precious. But then he builds on it. He then says, you're not just a, a loved community. You're a gathered community. Look at these words. You're a chosen race. You're a people for his own possession, a holy nation. He just builds upon this. He's saying, listen, you need to understand his community. Yes, you're loved, but also you're a gathered community. You're gathered together once you weren't a people. Just turn around. Just look around the room a moment. Just have a little look around at some other people in this room. Yeah, not a pretty sight, is it? No, no, just joking. It's a lovely sight. Do you know what? Once we weren't a people. We weren't. None of us in this room, in this church, were a people. But now we are a people. Now through Christ we are a people. And I hear at times people say, oh, I love Jesus hate the church. I don't get that. Because if you're a Christian, you have to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus died for his church. 
Jesus is passionate about a gathered community. That's why we are so passionate about things like cell groups, our small midweek groups that were mentioned earlier. If you're not in one, can I encourage you to knit yourself into a cell group? You see, this is the, you will hear certain information on a Sunday. But for transformation, you need community. And that's why cell groups are massively important. You will hear certain information on a Sunday. But if you want transformation, that takes community. And that's why I encourage you to give yourself getting stuck into a cell group. He says you are not just a love community, you are a gather community. And then thirdly, he says you are also a privileged community. Look at this word here, this phrase, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, I don't know if you've grown up familiar with the Catholic faith, for example. In, in, in Catholicism, there's a, a, a big onus on the priest. And the priest is seen as the separate one, the one who is separated to, to be closer to God. And they're the ones that you treat with great respect. They're the ones that, 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 that um, practice certain specific things only. They're set apart. And in the Old Testament, it was a kind of a little bit like that. There were certain men who were set aside by grace to kind of, you know, if you wanted to connect with God, you went to the priest. You, you brought your, your sacrifice to say sorry to God, and they would do the, the connection with God for you. Do you know what? All that has changed. He's saying here, that picture that they would have had in their mind of the special set-aside place of the priest before God, every believer now, every believer by grace has that unique position before God. Do you know you are as close to God as Billy Graham? You are as close to God as Billy Graham. And yet for some of us, we struggle to actually believe that. We still actually, without realizing it, have a priest-laity mentality. We do. And Peter here destroys that and says, No, you may have been a Christian 15 minutes, or 15 years, or 115 years if you're really old. And the reality is, every single Christian is a royal priest. By the blood of Jesus, he is the one mediator between heaven and earth. One man. He has made it possible. And so the church is not just a love community, not just a gathered community, but it's a privileged community beyond belief. Because as we look around this room, as we think about the churches all across this city and indeed all across the world, it is one incredible royal priesthood. By grace, not through performance, but through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice, by grace, allowing Weak men and women to say with confidence, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm before my king. John Piper puts it brilliantly like this. He says, the point here is that you have immediate access to God. You don't need another human priest as your mediator. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. So you are called now to minister in the presence of God. All your, listen to this. All your life, all your life is priestly service. You are never out of God's presence. You are never in a neutral zone. You are always in the courts of the temple. And your life is either a spiritual sacrifice of worship or it's out of character. That's amazing. Do you understand? You may never preach a sermon. You may never be an elder. You may never think, oh, you know, you may never... We so often see those positions as the kind of the equivalent of the priestly service. 
This truth says you may be a single mum in the middle of the night and yet you can do that loving your child as an act of worship. You could be a carpenter working with wood and God says, you do that. You are never out of the presence of God. Now you are a royal priest. You might be a teacher. It's just possible there may be one or two teachers here. Thousands of you wonderful people. Investing. Do you know the average teacher over their, over their career will invest in a thousand children? A thousand. And you can do all of it as a priest in the presence of God. Everything now. Every aspect of life. There's no sacred, secular divide. We are now continuously, by the grace of Christ, in the courts of the King. It's amazing. It's life-changing. And when you think about that individually, and then you think about it corporately, oh my, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. When we think about the church, we need to have a view that is not in line with maybe what we've seen, but actually with what Scripture says, with what God says. Martin Lloyd-Jones famous preacher from the last century says this, in bringing her, that's the church, into, God, into being, God has done something as entirely new as was the creation of the universe. He did not simply take a Jew and a Gentile and bring them together somehow in a kind of coalition and make them sit down together around a table and agree to be friendly. No, the church is a new creation. She is not a collection of parts. There is nothing, listen to this, that nothing that so proclaims the glory of God as the Christian church the body of which Christ himself is the head. The church, far from being an afterthought, is the brightest shining of the wisdom of God. There is nothing beyond the church. She is the highest and most supreme manifestation of the wisdom of God. And when you get this, it changes everything. When we start to see what God is about with people like you and me, it changes everything. And it means that your life, even when, if God sees fit to put you in a position of enormous influence, it changes things. Most of you would have seen, anyone here seen Chariots of Fire? It is an amazing film. It's about a true story about a guy, a Scotsman called Eric Liddell, who lived in the 1920s. And in the run-up to the 1924 Paris Olympics, everyone knew there was only one man who was going to run away with the 100 metres final. Eric Liddell, known as, a.k.a. the Flying Scotsman. And in the, in the, as the uh, Paris Olympics unfurled, this man was a devout Christian. A devout Christian. And it was said about him, this is wonderful, he said, I know God has called me for a purpose. And we find out that that purpose was to preach the gospel in China later in his life. But he also said this, but I know God has made me fast. And when I run, I love this, when I run, I feel the pleasure of my father. There was no sacred, secular divide. When he ran, it was worship. He had a Romans 12.1, massive view of worship. It wasn't singing songs when Rob Shilato leads worship or Michelle. It, no, the whole of our life. I'm a royal priest. I'm part of a royal priesthood by grace. Free access before God. He had this massive view of worship. But this is the incredible thing. When actually the timetable for the games uh, was, was, was revealed, do you know the final for the 100 meters was on a Sunday. And he prayed about this. He sought God and he said, you know what? I so love the church. I so love the community of God. I'm actually going to pull out. Because on that day, I would rather be worshipping with God's people than winning medals. He had seen by revelation something of the community of God. That ruined him. (laughs) 
He wasn't doing it to be a superstar. He was just overwhelmed with a community brought together under Jesus, a royal priesthood, loved, gathered, brought together. And so he said, you know, it's an easy decision. (laughs) Actually. And so on that Sunday, when the finals were run, Eric Liddell was in a church in Paris loving God. But you know, the amazing twist in the tale is that actually, in God's sovereignty, a member of the UK team hurt their leg who was going to run in the 400 meters. And Eric thought, what the heck? Let's give it a go. And so he signed up for the 400 meters, which wasn't going to happen on a Sunday. You know what's going to, how this is going to end. He took place in the race. He won it. And he set a new world record. <laughs> Just before, as he was poised to run, an American ran over to him with a note in a, in a bit of paper. He opened it up and it said, 1 Samuel 3.20. Those who honor God, I will honor. And he held it in his fist and he exploded out of the blocks and he won. This wasn't a legalist who thought, I need to be at church on Sunday. This was someone who glimpsed what it is to be in a community of royal priests in the priestly service of loving God. Isn't that wonderful? Friends, I want to encourage you. If you're, you're facing tests, trials, particularly Trials of a rejection kind. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian here today, please don't remove yourself from community. You know, knit yourself in all the harder. Fill your diary with time with other priests who know God. Be a part of something wonderful. Key number one, know Christ. Key number two, know his community. And thirdly and lastly, know his commission. Now this, as all good stories, I think is a bit of a twist in the tail. I wasn't necessarily expecting this when I saw this. Third key to handling rejection well is this. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Yeah, we got that one. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Can you join with me saying the word that nice and loud after three? One, two, three. That. If I could control the font size of Bibles, that would be like 72. The word that is hugely significant. He's saying here, the purpose of all that we've just heard, the purpose of knowing Christ, of knowing the privilege of of his community, the summation of all that, the purpose of being in that place of privilege is not just to go, no, cool, nice and cozy, great. Let's enjoy church together. No. It's that the whole of our lives wouldn't just be worship, but they would be a proclamation. And I'm not talking about preaching in terms of just lips. I'm saying the whole of our lives would be a proclamation of the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How are we doing as being proclaimers? Not the Scottish duo. We are called to be proclaimers. That's why I love healing on the streets with all my heart and soul. Because it's churches together. Who cares about the label? We're together. You know, we're ramshackle, bit scared. But we're here to proclaim the excellences of him who heals bodies, who makes legs grow, who makes deaf ears come alive. It's unlike any other religion. Do you know, ironically, the the week we started just down the road, there was a, a little table run by two Muslim guys. And it was just full of books. And basically, they were to explain the rules about if you want to become a Muslim, this is how you earn your way to salvation. Okay? Christianity is the opposite. 
He says, no one can earn their salvation. I know I can't. No one can. It's a lie. You have to be given it as a gift. That's why it's good news. Hallelujah. Just as he heals bodies and heals minds, he heals our souls. And he takes away our sin and he removes it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. We are loved by God, chosen and precious. And as a result, out of the overflow of our lives, we must always, 24-7, pursue a life of proclaiming Christ. We owe him that. And I want to do it with every breath I have. And remember, this is to a people who are facing rejection. They're being persecuted because they're proclaiming. And so you can say, what are you talking about, Peter? This is just unrealistic. Their, their lives are in danger, Peter. You know, they're going to want to go into hedgehog mode. You know, they've tried to talk about Jesus and they've got a really frosty answer. You know, they tried to bring God into things. Ring any bells? And we all want to go into little hedgehog mode. And Peter's saying, finally, I want to say to you, I want to implore you in view, in view, in view, in view, in view of what God has made you to be, individually and as a people, I implore you, to not let rejection stop you proclaiming the excellences. That is his commission. And it is a mighty commission. Because he is with us. He is with us all the way. And you say, well, how do we do this, Tom? This is the answer. Verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's the gospel. How do we... Maintain an ongoing proclaiming of him who's called us out of darkness into light. How do we do that when people actually don't want to hear it? How do we do it when we face some level of hostility? This is the key. Remember, you were once the one who was hostile. The Bible tells us that when Adam sinned, he was being hostile, rejecting God. And that basic virus has infected the whole human race. Me, Tom Shaw, all of us, at one point, were not a people. We were rejecting God. And this is a terminally ill situation. Only because Christ came as the one person who never rejected the Father. The one person who was connected perfectly to the Father and said, you know what, I want to take all of the punishment that you deserve for living your life without any reference to the Father, I'm going to take it upon me. At the cross, dying for your sin and my sin, so that we are left in restored relationship with the Father. That's the gospel. You were once not a people. How do we maintain a life so that when we're 80, 90, 100, please Lord, we are still robust and we haven't gone into, oh, we've just got to preserve my life mode. Please Lord, don't make me mention the name Jesus. No, we dwell upon our salvation. Once I was not a person, I was rejecting God. And only because he fought through that rejection and outloved me, can I now do the same to others. Only now, that means I can therefore fight through rejection and outlove those who are rejecting me. It's the key. It's the key to how we as a church, without Bible bashing, but with grace and love and sensitivity, nevertheless, can robustly keep communicating to the world, the city, about this great one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he gives us a couple of characteristics of, these, of this commission that we finish with. He says in verse 11, this commission is a commission to abstain. 
i.e. when rejected, not do things that we want to do in the flesh. But secondly, it's a commission to conduct ourselves honorably, the next verse, i.e. to do things positively that actually the situation wouldn't necessarily lead us into. So what am I saying here? This first aspect of the commission is we're called a commission to abstain. He's saying here, listen, listen, when you face rejection, the first thing to do is just remembering how much you have received as the one who used to reject God. Don't retaliate as your flesh would want you to. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. This week, you may have seen the news about the woman in Scotland, the nurse, who was attacked, bound with her hands and her legs, blindfolded and thrust into the boot of a car for not one, not two, not three, but for ten days without any food, without any water. Her attacker was caught and thrown to prison and she was interviewed now on primetime TV and the interviewer said, can you talk us through what was going through your mind? And she said, well, to be honest with you, uh, it was scary, but I just kept praying and I thought, well, if this is my time to go, well, at least it's relatively peaceful. No anger. No retaliation. And she said, um, and, we, and the person who attacked me, who's now in prison, I, I, I feel no anger towards him. I just pray that now he's in, in prison, he will repent. He'll turn around and, and love God. I mean, you could just hear the kind of silence from the reporter who was like, who just had everything, all his story had been diffused. He's like, right. That's a bit weird. That's kind of amazing. You've just been attacked in a boot, 10 days, hell on earth. And you visibly, visibly are in place of peace. She abstained. She abstained. When she was rejected, when she was attacked, she abstained because she'd understood. When she was squeezed, what came out of her was beautiful, clean water. Abstain. When you face rejection, counter a triumph when you simply do not lash back. Secondly, though, he goes one step further. Old Petey boy, sometimes, not just abstain, but positively conduct yourself honorably. Sometimes, when we're attacked, when we're rejected, whatever, it's not just a question of not doing that, but actually it's going the next step. It's loving your enemies. It's actually praying for those who persecute you. About a year and a half ago, I got a, a letter from um, a lady, not in this church, and I've got to be honest with you, it was kind of pretty venomous, <gasps> and uh, it didn't make pleasant reading, and uh, it just say it was a rejection of me, shall we say, and on and on and on, and uh, I was like, wowzers, she really doesn't like me, so I submitted it to the other elders and said, guys, um, just have a little look, look at this letter, please be honest with me, if this is true, I want to know. If there's these things in me that are true, and these guys will be really honest with me. And they said, honestly, there isn't. This isn't true. This is coming out of her hurt. And my initial reaction, I had to say, when I got that letter, before I spent some time with the elders, I wanted to, I wanted to write the longest email back in the world, should we say. I wanted to have a Skype conversation. I wanted to talk to this person and let her know my fury. How dare she? How dare she? And yet, once these guys have said, no, actually, 
and I spent some time praying. I thought, I found the strength to write a polite, hopefully honoring email back saying, thank you for your concern. I want you to know I'm safe. I'm, I'm with men who will speak honestly to me. I'm accountable to them. They've seen what you've written and we're going to work this through together. God bless you. Bye. Tom. And for me, that was a big deal. It may not sound impressive to you, but by God's grace, it was working this out. And through that painful situation, God put something in me that meant actually, if the gospel means anything, at these moments, these most difficult moments, these are the moments where, like that woman on primetime TV, these moments where we face the pain we want to get away from, if we look to Christ, if we remember the community, if we remember the commission, these aren't just opportunities just to get through. In God, these are the moments the world will watch and go, now that is amazing. That points to something else. Tell me about this Christianity. Tell me about this Christianity. I just want to pray. Father, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us. Maybe just the band could just come back. Just, we're just going to worship in a moment. But I just want us just to allow now the seeds of what we've heard just to come into our heart. I know we've looked at some sensitive issues. And I know that when we face rejection, sometimes actually it's a very painful thing. But right now, Father, we just present, let's present ourselves before him right now. I just believe for many of us today that specific truths have just been highlighted by God right now. And right, right now where you are, you might just want to, just for a few moments, just commit your heart to God now. And say, Father, 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 shape me. Strengthen me. Let me be like a sponge that's full of pure water. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. We thank you. You never, you never promised a life free from troubles. You modeled it. We want what you had, Jesus. That amazing single focus on the approval of the Father that meant you were able to walk with courage, with humility, with world-changing poise. I speak that over us today. I don't just ask for it, I speak it. Your word leads us to expect it. And I speak it now over every man, woman and child here who knows Christ. I pray now. I pray for a robust faith. A wonderful, Jesus-honoring, robust faith. Lord, I pray for those who have felt real actual pain at times of rejection. I pray maybe in a few moments you'll give them courage maybe just to come up to our ministry team in red t-shirts and be prayed for. I pray for those here actually right now who right now are experiencing maybe rejection, maybe even in terms of your own, own family, your kids that used to just love you now, they've got to an age and for some reason you just feel like they're kind of rejecting you. It's not an external rejection, it's just a rejection nevertheless. Jesus, I pray minister, 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 minister for maybe even there's spouses here and you've been married and to your best of your hearts you've been loving your spouse but for some reason you just feel they've kind of almost rejected you a little, just subtly. Right now, Jesus, mend those marriages. Mend them. Mend them, Jesus. As you mended, as you mended so many hearts 
as Peter, the writer of this, would have mended fishing nets, mend it now. Soften hearts afresh. Wonderful Jesus, we love you. I want to encourage you, if you're here and, and you know that you're not probably a Christian, but you're thinking about it. Remember that opening point, that there's two ways to see Jesus. In the sight of man, or in the sight of God. And, and God would say to you today, with tenderness and yet firmness, you, you need to decide at some point. You need to decide which way you're going to see Christ. In line with the world or in line with a father who says he's chosen, he's precious, he's the cornerstone your life needs to be built on. I want to encourage you, if that's you, please do feel free to come and talk to me or to Hugh or to someone you know perhaps who is a Christian and be proactive in, in pushing that door. Should we stand? Should we stand? I know this has been a, you know, a serious preach, but you know, Jesus is here. We have a good five minutes before parents need to get kids, so just relax if you're a parent. Let's just love Jesus for a moment. Yeah, let's love him. Let's honor him, the cornerstone, the one person who can take the load of our life. Lord, let's, let's worship him. We love you, God.